Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. When we suffer, it's because we are putting up defenses to avoid our emotions, like I did for many years when my grandmother passed. And we create these defenses based on lies we believe. Like for example, somehow I did something wrong. This is my fault, there's shame there. So we're, we're in this world of suffering. We might develop addictive behaviors or we might just numb out or get our anxiety and worth and value from our performance or our work, even if it's a good thing like a ministry or a calling. So we, we all have these ways that we avoid our reality, we avoid our pain, which creates tremendous suffering. Have you ever found yourself in that place? Do you find yourself in it right now? If so, you'll want to give a deep listen to today's episode with Andrea Anderson Polk, a licensed therapist whose passion to help others overcome life's setbacks and failures grew from her own youthful crucibles. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. In what may be the most emotional interview we've ever shared with you, Warwick and Andrea discuss how to discover beauty from ashes, how to find hope in the aftermath of devastation and disappointment. The key, as Andrea has found in counseling her clients, is focusing on what you treasure, because in pursuing and embracing those things, you will find your purpose and calling, what we at Crucible Leadership refer to as a life of significance. Andrea, thanks so much for being here. As I looked at your website and some of what you do in counseling and speaking and just helping people to change the direction of their lives, lives on purpose, it was just all eerily familiar. It just was so exciting what you do. It just feels so uplifting. And I just felt myself agreeing with just I don't know, everything that I could find that you have on your website. But before we get to what you do in your counseling, I'd love to hear some of the backstory that led you to do what you do. I'm sure you know better than I do. There's always a story behind who we are and the paths that we've taken. And uh, obviously, your listeners are pretty familiar with my story and where I've ended up. But just tell us a bit about kind of Andrea and how you grew up and yeah, just sort of the background that led you to do what you do. Absolutely. I just wanted to pause work and say it's, it's such an honor to be on your podcast. Uh, I love your word, eerie. Um, when I was listening to your previous sessions and reading your website, I just thought, oh, I, I have goosebumps at how similar our messages are. And like you said, our stories are quite different. Um, and I, I also wanted to say, I, I really feel like you have created a culture of vulnerability. That's what kept coming to my heart as I was reading your story and preparing this time. And, you know, someone with your reputation and this family dynasty, um, this 150-year-old family media business, and um, just the fall of that, it, you know, it takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to share that story at the risk of reputation, I'm sure, for yourself and your family. 
So I'm, I'm really thankful for your vulnerability and, you know, clearly with, uh, with what you created here, it, it's, it gives other people the opportunity to say, well, I can be vulnerable about my story. I can share my failures and there's no shame in that. So I just wanted mm. to say thank you for that. That's really wow. important. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, I almost feel like I'm sort of, you know, reading from your hymnal or songbook. So if I do, just forgive me, but the power of vulnerability, and it, it does give other people freedom to be themselves. And, you know, life isn't over when we've made mistakes or terrible things have happened to us. And uh, that's the encouraging thing about just a lot of the different stories, the commonality amongst the, I don't know, the 50 people we've had, which is very diverse by background, race, gender, type of crucible, is they've all shown hope, is they've all found a way to get beyond. There are scars, but they've all found a way to get beyond it. And so that's, that's the commonality. So amidst tremendous diversity of experience, there's also similarity, which I find fascinating. <laughs> no, and you would yeah, understand absolutely. better than I do, being a psycho psychologist or counselor. But yeah, so yeah, just tell us about how you grew up and just some of the background that, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the, the origin story, if you will, of, of Andrea and who you are now. Yeah, so something that I've found in, in my own life and my work with my clients is that our greatest place of pain is our greatest place of power and our area of weakness is our area of gifting. So hmm. as I share my story, there, there are certain places of pain in my life that really ended up have becoming my place of um, gifting and where I feel empowered. I grew up actually down the street um, here in McLean, not too far from my practice. And on my break between clients, I like to you know, get outside and be in nature and I often walk the sidewalks of my childhood neighborhood. And when I pass by the house that I grew up in, you know, the, the quote that comes to me is, you know, it, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Hmm. Uh, I, I have so many positive memories of my childhood. My grandmother, who was my safe place, she lived directly across the street or down the sidewalk. I had great memories playing with my friends in the neighborhood, you know, catching lightning bugs in the summer, sledding in the winter. It was, it was a real community, and I really treasured that time. I'm the oldest of four, so my siblings were very much my best friends. So again, a lot of, a lot of great memories, but there, you know, there was also a lot of um, trauma in my childhood, too. Uh, my father uh, had a very complicated, complex personality, uh, which was really confusing for me. I would say the undercurrent of my childhood uh, was a fear of my father and his unpredictable rage. And when those moments would either, you know, land on myself or my siblings would be a target of that or my mom... And, you know, there was also times where he was a great dad and he would play with us and be loving. So um, there was this sort of this crazy making, confusing part of uh, my relationship with my father, of my childhood. 
just a lot of kind of unanswered questions as I grew older and, and tried to navigate through that. Something else that's important to note is my family grew up in the church, and my parents, for as long as I can remember, they were in and out of counseling, um, both pastorally and professionally. And I, I don't know the details of all that because um, I was quite young, but that also proved to be a source of pain for me because you know here I thought, well, we go to church, you know, that's supposed to be a safe, loving place. And as my parents were in and out of pastoral counseling, nothing seemed to help or get better. Um, things just got worse in terms of my father's anger um, and a lot of traumatic memories. So that, so the idea of God and the idea of church started to become um, painful for me, created a lot of distrust and confusion as well. And my, I've always been extremely intuitive. I've always had a fascination with how people think, why do people do the things they do? And growing up, part of what helped me survive or even served as a, a protection because of my father's rage was so unpredictable, it's like I was always walking around with a magnifying glass trying to figure out, okay, what, you know, let me try and understand his, his mood when he comes home. Um, is he going to be playing catch with us in the yard or is you know, one of us going to be the target of his anger? So I started to sort of like a sponge absorb um, his emotions, his thoughts to try to, again, as the oldest, um, protect myself, my siblings and my mom. So something that I feel like was a, a gift, my intuition, also a joy, really understanding people. I've always been curious. You know, my friends, even when I was little, would talk to me and share their problems with me. But in terms of being at home, I, I was operating in that place more out of survival. And also just being the typical oldest child, I, I also felt a sense of responsibility uh, for my siblings. You know, I have one memory that stands out. Um, I remember, um, you know, before cell phones, I was holding our rotary phone and I was standing there shaking, trying to make this decision, do I call 911 um, based on what was happening with my sister. Um, she had done something wrong and my dad was in a very violent place with her. So just, you know, as a adolescent girl, just this feeling of it's you know, it's sort of up to me to, um, you know, intervene in this situation. So, um, so that, that was very painful, very confusing throughout my childhood and adolescence, as well as um, the church and God. Uh, my grandmother, I, I call her Gaga. She, as I mentioned, lived right down the street from us. And she was a consistent safe place for me throughout my childhood. When things got really painful at home, I could just walk right down the street, stay the night with her, uh, really just leave that trauma behind. And 
Um, Warwick, I, I read this in your story. Um, you mentioned that when your dad passed away, that was that was the hardest experience of your life. And uh, I noticed a, a picture with you and your father on mm-hmm. your website. And you know, I, I feel the same way about about Gaga, my grandmother. It was mm. that was the most painful experience of my life when she passed away. Uh, I was 16 years old, and she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Mm. We had just gotten back from our uh, annual family beach trip, and she passed away three months later. So it was it was very mm. quick, and for me, it, it really it was just it was crushing. Uh, you know, I lost my safe place. I lost my best friend. I I lost the, the really only source of unconditional love that I had known besides my, besides my mom. And at that point, I, I really just shut down my, my heart, my emotions altogether. And I often tell my clients, you know, and we, we can get into this later about the importance of going into our pain and, and really facing that even though it's scary. Um, but when you shut down your um, your negative emotions, when I say negative, um, those emotions that are hard to feel, like anger, grief especially, you shut down the positive emotions too, joy and happiness. So I, I, I was so traumatized by her passing that I became extremely numb. It's completely mm. disconnected from my body and emotions that... 16, I remember specifically sitting at her funeral and everybody knew how close we were. We had this really special bond. Uh, In fact, growing up, whenever she would come stay at our house, she was simply not allowed to sleep in my siblings' room. (laughs) Like my poor, my poor brother and sisters, if, if they even entertained the idea of having Gaga sleep in their room, it was like all hell broke loose. Like Andrea is having a temper <laughs> tantrum. It's like, the, wow. you know, we could not <laughs> sleep in her, you know. So we, all that to say, we, we just had a very close bond. And so anyway, when I was at the funeral, uh, I, I didn't shed a tear. I, I just sat there um, like a stone. And I remember feeling an extreme sense of shame because my family and, and friends and extended family were all sort of looking at me, um, really confused about how, how is Andrea of all people not upset or showing any emotion or crying or why is she sitting in the very back row? And I, I was just so removed and, and so in shock and denial about Gaga passing. So that, I, I never grieved her death until many years later in my own counseling and tried to find safe places um, really through my performance. I I threw myself into sports and competition, um, grades, always did well in school. Uh, And my father, there there was a lot of performance-based anxiety and and more of a conditional love and Mm our relationship too. So when I lost my safe place, I just sort of was in this orb of not feeling and performing and getting my worth and value and identity from 
you know, what I was doing as opposed to being a person and having emotions and, and also having a voice. Um, so how I ended up becoming a counselor was my parents, they, they would always jump from counselor to counselor, church to church. Again, I don't know the details, but things always seem to get worse instead of better. We would go to church every Sunday morning. That was extremely confusing to me because I'd see my father one way at church. He'd be a totally different way at home. And I thought to myself, well, what, what kind of God is this that we're supposed to praise and uh, and worship and you know he, he, there's there's nothing that he's doing to um, take any of this pain away. So my parents ended up getting a divorce when I was in my early 20s, and I would say things got a lot worse before they got better. But what I do remember is when my parents got divorced there was uh, an oppression and um, like a, a torment that lifted from our house. And I, I'm, I'm not encouraging divorce, and it's, that's one of the great traumas that people experience. But for me personally, on, on behalf of my three siblings and my mother, I, I can say with certainty that there was um, an immense freedom um, that immediately came into our lives and this fear that we have all lived in and this dread of you know when dad comes home what's what's going to happen um it was was eradicated and that that really gave me the space and permission I, I started to find my voice again and that's when I started my own journey of healing I ended up uh, receiving pastoral counseling from our church at the time, very hesitantly. Um, I'll never forget my mom came to me and said, I, I, I think you should start counseling at the church here. And I thought that was the last thing I want to do. I don't want anything to do with the church or God or counseling. That All, all of that seemed very confusing and painful to me. But I felt like I wanted to do that just to honor my mom and what she had gone through. Um, so I did, and I sat in that, that chair in, in the office once a week for two years. And it just absolutely changed my life. It, uh, I found my voice again. I was able to feel safe um, to tell my story. It was almost like the safe place that I had with my grandmother was restored um, with these particular people in that room. And I realized at that time, you know, I want to give to other people this, this hope, this safety, and this freedom that these people have given to me and a, a voice to tell my story void of any shame. And you know, years later, I started going to professional counseling, really worked through a lot of um, boundary setting with my father, forgiveness. You know, I went a lot deeper into the trauma and emotions of my childhood and adolescence. And 
the thing that was the most difficult is, you know, my, my father can be um, extremely enjoyable at times. And as I was working through how to have a relationship with him, I, I came to this, I guess it's more of a schism for me, where he he never, in my opinion, acknowledged the pain that he caused my siblings and I. And when we had a restoration time with him, and it wasn't an intervention, there, there was no um, mean agenda, we weren't trying mm. to hurt him, but we just wanted to share with him, you know, we have these memories and these things happened and he couldn't acknowledge them. He couldn't admit to what he had done. And his approach was more blaming my mother and pointing out her list of wrongs. So, you know, it, it just reminded me of how I felt as a child, just sort of a, a crazy making feeling of shame. You know, it must be me. I must have done something wrong. But I decided through my own growth, my own journey of healing, and my own counseling experience that it was really costing me, causing me more suffering to try to demand answers from him and trying to find out why and understanding and really wanting him to acknowledge what he did. So I had to let go of being the person to hold him accountable. So... All that to say, um, you know, my greatest places of pain, which was losing my my grandmother, uh, a lot of the trauma that I and witnessing my mom and siblings um, deal with growing up, and the church and counseling were all extremely painful experiences for me. Even my own love for understanding people, as I mentioned, my intuition, my ability to read people was a very painful place because it came from this um, place of survival. But as I went through my counseling journey, I really felt like those places became restored. My love for helping people. Um, you know, I'm a person of faith. So my relationship with God, um, how I view the church, all became great places of gifting and strength in my life, which I'm extremely grateful for. Well, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that, Andrea, and being so vulnerable. Gosh, it's hard to know where to start. But I guess the thing that occurs to me is, sadly, I feel like in some ways I can understand what you were talking about. You know, not so much intellectually, but experientially. Again, I want to this is about you, not me, a bit um, without getting into every detail. I mean, I, I guess I had a close family member that I'm not a psychologist. So I don't know if this person was narcissistic, certainly probably manic. You know, some days it would be like everything's rosy and then the next time and I was a wonderful person and then the next time it would be I was this terrible person. And, you know, when you're five, six, seven years old, it's like it's very confusing. So who am I, this wonderful young boy or this terrible person and very controlling yeah. and uh, performance-based stuff and and all the rest. So yeah, at, at one level, I can understand. It's just that, that image I have of your grandmother being that safe place and when that was gone, and again, I'm not a psychologist, but I can totally understand how you sat in that church 
feeling numb, not being able to, again, not, I'm you know, playing amateur psychologist and know a thimble full relative to you, but I almost wonder if the grief was so overwhelming that you just couldn't process it. It just sort of blew your circuits and it just was too numb to go through it all. But it's, you know, you go through that and you can either get angry and, or you can use your pain for a purpose. And the other thing I often yeah. find is life isn't satisfying. I mean, I, when I was in my 20s, I had a conversation with this uh, family member and just mentioned, uh, you know, all the ways I felt like I'd been hurt and went into a fair amount of detail with sort of, I don't know, heaving sobs and what have you. And it was like talking to a brick wall. Zero emotion, zero contrition. It's almost like, I'm sorry if you feel that way. And it was like, okay, this is never going to get resolved. <laughs> you know, oh, this person dear. has the lack of willingness or lack of desire. And so the point about all this is not to Powerlessness with all that. But I guess the point that maybe Andrea's found and I've found is, you know, from a certainly a Christian biblical point of view, you'll want reconciliation. But not oftentimes we have family members that they refuse to acknowledge what they've done. They won't reconcile. So we have to forgive even when there's no contrition. As I often say, forgiveness doesn't mean condoning. You obviously and your siblings don't condone what your dad did, but I don't you know, condone the behavior of this family member, but that's that's tough for a lot of people. So I'm just amazed that you used your pain and focused it in a positive way. I mean, it's just it's, everything you say sounds so eerily familiar. I'll stop talking here in a minute because it's not meant to be no, about the, me. The therapist in me loves to hear your story. <laughs> but, um, so I'll, 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 I'll be quiet in a minute here, but I mean, a lot of guys, not to be sexist here, aren't particularly discerning. You know, they're not good at reading the tea leaves. You know, there's a classic one. You, you, you know, your wife says to you, I'm fine. And uh, the husband goes, great, even though it was said with dripping sarcasm. And, you know, it goes right over mm. a lot of our heads. And sure. I guess um, I get that. But I've also found maybe through what I've been through, pretty discerning and but I've never wanted to do what you did because I frankly couldn't handle it. It was I, I'm not why that way. I'm, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to just leave it. I admire people that can do what you do. You do. But I use some of what I went through to do become a certified executive coach. I can deal more in that space. You know, <laughs> I feel a little safer, frankly, for me. <laughs> but you you still had such a you know. I think the therapist in me is curious. You know, you were able to push through really painful experiences in your life, be vulnerable and share your story uh, with the public, basically. What, what or who in your life gave you the courage to take that risk? Because again, you know, we, yeah. we all have been through pain. We all have a story and, right. you know, the, the way that you're using your crucible leadership as a platform to give other people hope and encourage their vulnerability what uh, what or who was it for you that that gave you the courage to share well that's a good question again this is a conversation so <laughs> i'll answer that question because i think it's a good question you know a couple things i mean like you you know my faith in my case my faith well in our cases my faith in christ is the cornerstone of who i am i came to faith through a, an evangelical church at oxford that was part of it. I had some uh, mentors, guys who were, you know, I don't know, a couple of decades older that that helped process some of these things later on. Some some counseling and um, 
I think counseling is a wonderful thing and uh, it's not a sign of failure. I think it's a sign of courage is obviously, I'm sure you'd be the first to agree. Yes. But I was also blessed uh, to marry an American girl I met in Australia, been married a bit over 30 years. And she gave me, I guess, what I hadn't experienced with this other person, just unconditional love that didn't depend on my performance when the company went under. It's like, I wasn't a bad person. I just made some dumb decisions, dumb business decisions. So just having a community of faith and a higher power in Christ for me and a community of believers and then a wife who loved me unconditionally. That's why I tell my kids, you have no clue how blessed you are to have a mother that loves you unconditionally. Because mm. I've experienced the other side. So, sorry, I guess maybe it's the counsel in you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes me well, get in I'm touch just, with my you're, you're feelings. I'm sorry about that. Story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that's, and there's no greater gift than having a, a person be that safe place, place of unconditional love. I, I really appreciate your vulnerability, even in this well, moment sharing. I'm sure people yeah. listening are, are really moved by that. And let me jump in and, and pull some balloon strings together on what we've been talking about because it's been it's been extraordinarily powerful the emotion that both of you have shown and i go back andrea to uh we had a conversation weeks ago before as we were setting this up and you said something that i wrote down and i and i circled we've seen it come to life right here in this conversation you said this our greatest places of pain are our greatest places of power. And you described that, Andrea, when you were telling your story, and Warwick just described it and modeled it in what he was talking about. You're counseling people, Andrea, out of your pain. Warwick, you're coaching people out of your pain. And both of you are helping people overcome their pain, leveraging the pain that you went through. That is a a neon sign, a, a, a Las Vegas wattage neon sign of that truth that you spoke, Andrea, that our greatest places of pain are our greatest places of power. Yeah, so that's so true. So talk a bit about kind of, you've used your pain, your experience. I love the fact that there was a point at which your faith was understandably shaken by your dad's ability to uh, fool people at church, which... It's pretty sad when that happens, but it's probably more common than we would like to admit, which is so sad. But, sure. you know, it's hard to maybe spot at times. But talk about how, you know, what you do now. I mean, you have a really a mission, a calling to help people come back from the darkness, to help people use that pain. I mean, we often talk about pain for a purpose, but you understand at a much deeper level why that really works. So talk about how you know, pain for a purpose, how your greatest weakness and pain could be your strength. Talk about how that actually works for you, because intuitively that makes sense to me, but, you know, you're a uh, certified counselor, and I mean, you actually understand this stuff in a lot of depth. So talk about how does that work, and why does it work? Well, I consider myself, you know, Gary, when you were reading my bio at the beginning, I thought, my goodness, that sounds so, like, official, <laughs> You know, and my, my, I would I would really say who I am is I'm a a treasure hunter. Um, huh. I 
I love to find the treasure in people. Um, one of my favorite scriptures is Isaiah 45, 3, which says, I will give you treasures from darkness, riches mm. hidden in secret places. I love to see the treasure within people when they can't see it themselves and be a part of the journey of bringing that treasure out from the darkness in their lives. In terms of sitting with people and their pain, that, that's so important. I found a lot of people don't understand their own suffering because they don't have the tools and or the safe person to sit with and share their pain and their story. And there's a lot of fear around pain. And what I found with my clients when they've come to see me, they might have been through a plethora of different counselors and they come to see me and maybe a few sessions in they'll say gosh Andrew I feel like I've learned more in three sessions with you than maybe three months or three years with someone else and my response to them is I'm, I'm not trying to fix you I'm I want to be a safe place where this counseling session models a relationship and, you know, a lot of people come into therapy and, for example, I don't take notes when I'm sitting with someone because I see mm. this as a, as a relationship with my clients. So when they come in and they're bringing their pain and their story, I'm not only looking for their treasure, but I'm, I'm helping them go into their emotions. And, for example, if I'm sitting with a client and I'll say, how are you feeling about you know, whatever it is that they're bringing into the session? Some people might say, well, I, I feel like my spouse doesn't understand me, or I feel like leaving my job, or I feel stuck or anxious or confused. And they, they don't have the understanding that those are all thoughts. Not, none of those are feelings. So my greatest joy is to help somebody really experience their emotions. I might say, well, where do you feel that in your body? And helping them understand that, you know, when you say you feel like your spouse doesn't understand you, let's dig deeper and what's the story there? What what are you feeling? And let's let's drop down from having an intellectual conversation to connecting hearts. I think a lot of people in therapy experience more of a head-to-head -head intellectual conversation. And, you know, knowledge in and of itself cannot bring um, truth. You know, I believe that truth sets us free, but truth is synonymous with reality. So, you know, learning to sit with the reality of our, of our pain. Um, something else that I, I tell my clients is just because we experience pain doesn't mean we have to suffer. So there's a distinction between pain and suffering. We all experience pain, like Warwick, with, with your story. Um, you know, we all experience um, rejection, failure, heartbreak, someone close to us passing away. But when we suffer, it's because we are putting up defenses to avoid our emotions, like I did for many years when my grandmother passed. And we create these defenses based on lies we believe. Like, for example, somehow this is 
I did something wrong. This is my fault. There's shame there. So we're, we're in this world of suffering. We might develop addictive behaviors or we might just numb out or get our anxiety and worth and value from our performance or our work, even if it's a good thing like a ministry or a calling. So we, we all have these ways that we avoid our reality. We avoid our pain, which creates tremendous suffering. I think maybe what you're getting at is it's just some people's way of coping, yes. I mean, I also worked hard, did well at school and other things. But, you know, by trying to, you know, move past it with performance, which you do hear about, which is fine, but, you know, you have to deal with the pain. If you don't deal with it, it's just going to erode your soul at some point. And it's just interesting as you're talking about the difference between what you're doing and maybe some others. Again, I'm not a counselor, but these pains, that the pain that we go through, that the pain of the heart and the soul, how can talking at a head and intellectual level, you can say, well, intellectually, you know, uh, you know, maybe your dad has had narcissistic tendencies and it's A, B, and C. And well, that's great to know, but how does that help you overcome that? Right? I mean, it, it helps to yeah. understand at one level. It's not, not, it's helped you to some degree, but where's the healing of your soul and your heart? You know, so yeah, I don't yeah. understand how you can not deal at the heart level if you want to help somebody. Maybe it sounds obvious to me, but. That's that's very true. I you know, I think a, a lot of times when I have clients come in, you know, they'll they'll sit on the edge of my sofa, you know, on their first session, and um, you know, I'll say let let's let's just take a step back <laughs> and just breathe. And the first question I always ask them, I said, "How do you feel about being here right now?" Right. Um, something I also ask a lot during our treatment is, "How are you feeling towards me?" Because what whatever they're manifesting in their relationship with me is, you know, sort of a mirror into how their relationships are with other people. So the counseling session in our relationship and how we're interacting together is, is part of the healing process. It's part of treating them as a person with, with the story, with emotions, instead of trying to fix them. And you know, a lot of people are anxious. They want answers. They don't want to feel their pain. They want to talk about it. So work like you're saying, they might understand, oh, okay, my mother perhaps had these narcissistic tendencies and maybe that provides some relief and understanding. But you could only go so far unless you're really allowing them to to go into their pain and creating that safe place to do so. Yeah, you have to be able to deal with it. One of the things I've often been curious about is, at least for me, that thought which it's not an intellectual thought for me, I'm sure it isn't for you either, that God loved me unconditionally. When people ask, well, how did you get over the whole takeover? I always say, I mean, it's just the thought that God loved me unconditionally for who I was, not because of what I could have done with Fairfax Media or what have you. You know, he loves me even as broken and damaged as I was, you know? And I, so that, I don't know how you get beyond your pain. Maybe it's possible, but to me, let's put it positively rather than negatively. I don't know. To me, I find faith that there is a loving God that isn't narcissistic, isn't controlling, that is, you know, is perfection, that, that loves you just because of who you are and, and knows your most intimate thought and fear and still loves you anyway. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how Absolutely. people get better without that, but let's 
maybe we, I don't know if we'd have to answer that, but look at it. let's look at a positive from a faith perspective. Talk about how faith, at least from your perspective, helps recovery, if that's an okay question. Yes, uh, you know, and when you mentioned earlier about experiencing the unconditional love from your wife, mm-hmm. having, you know, people who are of faith and, you know, a lot of clients come to me because uh, they're seeking professional counseling. Most of my mm-hmm. clients come by word of mouth. Um, they're also wanting to incorporate their uh, their faith, you know, their personal relationship with God during their time and kind of weaving that in. So if, if that's something a, a client is requesting, you know, there's attachment to God, you know, is often a reflection of the uh, the attachment mm-hmm. with their primary caregivers. And so again, being to create a, a safe place for them to explore that where they don't feel ashamed to say they're angry with mm-hmm. God, just like if I had a yeah. client who was terrified to say they were ever angry with their father or their mother or their you know, boss or whoever, being able to be honest with those feelings and treating their relationship with God in the counseling session and any other relationship in their life that's caused confusion or heartache or has felt unsafe and and trying to restore that safe place for them and giving them the opportunity to process all of their emotions and experiences with God that perhaps have been painful. So I I think that's really well said. I think there's also maybe which we talk about a lot, the power of vulnerability is sometimes we feel like if people knew who we really are and, you know, we don't have to tell every person we meet, hi, my name is Warwick, let me tell you about my pain. I mean, that's, there is oversharing. Yes. But, you know, in appropriate context at appropriate levels, I've talked about this before because of the whole family business thing. You know, I did my undergrad at Oxford and my MBA at Harvard Business School there were years where I just wouldn't go there because I felt too embarrassed or ashamed. I felt like, let's just pick one of them, Harvard Business School. They said, boy, you failed? Oh my gosh. You know, almost like a leper, you know, flee. Don't don't be here. And finally, I don't know, through prayer, whatever, I took the courage to go to ones probably in the 90s. Uh, so it wasn't that long after, you know, the family company went under in 1990. And, you know, plenty of people in business school, they fail, they've been fired. It's not like I'm the only one. Okay, now not everybody's lost a, you know, $2.25 billion business. That's pro- that's a level yeah. of failure that's a little hard to beat, even in, even in the US. But, uh, <laughs> you know, number one in failure, <laughs> you know, but uh, at least business <laughs> failure. Uh, but people weren't judgmental. And these aren't all people of faith. It's just a so sometimes there's this lie we tell ourselves, and I'm sure you probably tell your clients, that if they only knew who we were, that they would never want to be around me. And, and obviously, sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it's somebody else's mm-hmm. fault, but still we feel ashamed. And if they knew who I was, yeah. I'd be just damaged goods, and they wouldn't. They would just shun me. But that's that's a lie mm-hmm. that, from a spiritual perspective, we think the enemy mm-hmm. says. But talk about the power of once you overcome and share appropriately that it it can be healing and people's paradigm of people will reject me. It doesn't turn out to be true, if that makes sense. Yes, it it makes perfect sense. You know, we all have a certain narrative or 
a story that we believe about ourselves from our not just from our upbringing, but any you know crucible experience throughout life. And I, I feel like we we get stuck if we aren't able to face the, the our emotions and the pain of that experience. And then those lies we believe they get reinforced when other people, it could be well-meaning people or like you were explaining with university, sometimes people can say something sharp or say something that feels like a rejection. And that lie within us is filtering what they're saying through what we believe to be true, even though that's a lie. So as you start to, to gain power in your place of pain and the sting goes away and you start to remove those false narratives and those stories that are based in a lie, then when people do reject you or whether it's perceived or real, you're, you're not filtering it through that lens anymore. You know, you're able to come mm -hmm. from a place of purpose, from a place of power, from a place of strength rather than shame or being stuck in those lies. So you, you have a, a truth in you that you're filtering through and you're able to cope with uh, what other people think, um, rejections that come your way. So I, I think that's hmm. definitely true. Hmm. And would it be fair to say that, that that, what you just described, Andrea, is a bit of, a, of an inoculation against future crucibles, right? If you have that perspective about yourself, if you have been vulnerable, you recognize the truth about yourself, as Warwick has said, not perfect, but you know, not somewhere between way up here and way down here is where you kind of live most of the time. If you have that realization as crucibles come and they will in your life, additional crucibles, does that give you a little bit of, of inoculation and resistance to be able to handle those well? the next time they show up? That's a great question. And what I would say is that I think that I found this um, to be true in my own life when I've had failures come my way um, relationally or in my career. I, I have to really battle with uh, the sense of shame of, shouldn't I be over this by now? I, you know, I worked, did all this counseling, worked through these issues. And I think sometimes just as people, you know, we have a tendency to want to fix ourselves um, or to know things at the cost of being known as a person. And I think, too, um, being a person of faith and dealing a lot with um, people that are coming to see me who are referred from churches and that sort of thing, sometimes can be sent this implicit message that, you know, if you had enough faith, uh, you shouldn't be struggling with the same thing. You should have been like, quote, healed from that. Oh, my gosh. That's so I think so, a lot of times we think, that, that, that's so like, damaging. I should put a big check. Like, I will never struggle with that again. No. And that, that's just right. not human. No, we're, we're all human. Yeah, that's that's so damaging. One of the, I mean, I, I guess one thing you talk about is is purpose. That's, you know, you want people to find their purpose, not just, you know, you can focus on the problem which is helpful, but purpose is maybe more helpful. But one of the things I often wonder from a, a counseling perspective is, at least what I try and do is not have my self-esteem wrapped up in what I do. I mean, this is something I kind of, a bit like exercise, I actively try and do almost on a daily basis. Because it's easy, 
Yeah, I'm not tempted by money. I never really have been. I grew up in a wealthy family business. But could I be tempted by, you know, like I have a book coming out in October, Crucible Leadership, and could I be like, oh, if it's successful, which it may or may not be, and we're doing a level best to try to do everything you meant to be doing, uh, if it's successful, does that mean I'm a better person? No. Is that a worse person? No. But I'm trying to decouple my self-esteem from any outcomes of what I do. Doesn't mean I put any less effort. Something good happens. From my perspective, I just have this almost like a mantra, say, all glory to God. It's thank you. I just try not to take credit because I don't want my self-esteem. It's an insidious thing. And I do not want to get, because that's a good way to have a fall. So I don't know if any of that makes sense, but do you you try to talk to folks that if you have your self-esteem based on that next job promotion or what college your kids are getting into or whatever it is, you're set up for pain. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Are you trying to help them decouple self-esteem from performance? Yeah. So that's one of the things I'm most passionate. I, I do a lot of speaking on is this distinction between, you know, your dream and your purpose. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. cliche. You hear it a lot, you know, live your dream or how, how do you find your dream? And I found it in a lot of my work and in my life personally, it's so easy to attach your worth and value to your dream, you know, which can be a career or like you said, a, a book coming out or perhaps a ministry. Um, but what happens when when that goes poorly? So f- when I think about purpose as opposed to a dream, you know, a dream is could perhaps be part of your purpose and manifestation. But I see purpose as more of a, a deep-seated joy of the soul. Um, it's mm. it's it's a more relational dynamic than a circumstantial dynamic, and it incorporates your pain and your story. And for example, I, I can just share this briefly. I when I was taking my board exam to get my professional licensure. Um, you have to get an undergraduate degree, graduate degree, you do a 600-hour internship, a 3,000-plus residency, 250 hours of supervision, mm. and at the end of that, you take your uh, state board exam. So essentially, you you know you can't become a licensed professional counselor, which is what I am, unless you pass that exam, no matter how much work you've done prior. And again, I, I thought I had worked through this in counseling years before, but I ended up failing my um, my board exam, mm. and it, it absolutely uh, it was like a blow to my self worth. And I, I realized that during that time, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so humbling. But I had no idea the level of perfectionism and worth and value that I was tying to my uh, licensure. And I did all that years of hard work. So there is a reality of like, you know, eventually need to pass this exam. But between the four months when I failed and had to take it again, I felt like I went through this metaphorical open heart surgery mm. and really had to take a deeper look at, you know, is this my purpose or my dream? And What's what's going on? I felt like I was experiencing a faith crisis. You know, my, does this mean I'm not called to do this? And an identity crisis. And it was very humbling. But I can honestly say when I look back at the four months between when I 
failed and, and took it again, that I, I wouldn't change that experience for the world because it, it made me a better clinician, a better friend, a better sibling. I, I feel like it, I got in touch with my humanness. So all that to say, Warwick, I, you know, when you're yeah. talking about your book coming out yeah. as an example, I think we do have a temptation to put our um, purpose into uh, something that is more of a dream than yeah. sort of the bigger picture of our life. And, and when it's uh, something that we feel that we're, I use the word calling, we're called to do, and you fail in an area of gifting, which you're obviously a gifted counselor, at least that's the way you would have processed it, I imagine. It's like that really can rock your self-esteem. Hey, this is something I'm meant yes. to be good at. How in the world could that happen? And there's always reasons on a smaller scale. I, you know, you have to yes. be recertified every like three years. To me as a coach, I'm an international coach, federation certified coach. And part of that I had to do some coach mentoring and was doing a thing with a group of people and a program that's all part of all this. And it was my turn to uh, coach, you know, one of the other people in the group. And somehow my Zoom thing wasn't working and nobody could hear me. And so it was, took 15 minutes mm -hmm. to resolve. So by that point, I was all flustered, understandably. Yes. And I didn't do that good a job. And so afterwards, when they give you feedback, I was given very direct feedback, basically in a polite way, said that it was really poor or not good. They didn't use those words, but that was my interpretation. Mm. It wasn't that long ago, like, I don't know, a year or so ago. And I, I mean, yes, that really hurt my feelings. Not that I was disagreeing with the feedback, but, you know, it took me a few mm. days, maybe a bit more. And, and I knew this was stupid for me to react like this. I had a bad day. I am a good coach. But even knowing all of that, you know, and at the age I am, it's, which is, you know, it was just almost amusing the fact that it still hurt me. And I knew intellectually yeah. this made no sense. It was the technology. I had a bad day. It was the kind of client I was dealing with that was, I kept asking questions and nothing came back. And it's like, I just didn't know what to do. And anyway, you get the idea. Sometimes we feel like our worst day defines us even the people we are now. It just goes to show us how human we are. But yeah, I, I love this notion just as we kind of getting uh, towards the close here. I love this notion you use of dream versus calling. And I, again, I, I could have said this every five minutes. I've done well actually not to do that throughout most of this podcast. <laughs> I've been really trying not to say, oh you my gosh, I agree. Wow. You know, <laughs> I, I can be a wit I can bear witness to that. It, you have restrained yourself. I've heard you say "wow" a lot more times in, a, in yeah, another episode. Yeah, it, it requires sure. tremendous self-restraint. But um, <laughs> when I think about my book and what I'm and Crystal Leadership and the incredible team that I have, I view it not as a, a as a vision. And I'm a strategic planner. Uh, and if somebody said, "So, what's your plan over the next?" two, three, four years, it's like, I don't have one. You know, I feel a calling. Mm. And from my perspective, yeah. to spiritualize, I feel God will tell me the next step. I've got a great team with tremendous expertise at each one of their areas. Uh, one of whom is here on the, on the podcast with us, Gary. So I've got no shortage mm -hmm. of fantastic people who are experts in their discipline, but I just feel like I, I need to be faithful to the calling God has put on my life, which is basically to use what I've been through and my message 
to help people bounce back from failures and setbacks, crucible experiences, as we call them, to live lives of significance, lives on purpose, dedicated to serving others. That's my calling. That's my mission. So, so long as I'm doing that, that's all I need to do. The outcome, from my perspective, is not on me. It's, again, from my faith perspective, on God. Whether I sell one book or 10,000, and I'm doing my level best to do everything I can, humanly speaking, I said this to my publisher, you know, uh, he's fortunately a person of faith, so can understand my perspective. Yes. You know, my self-esteem doesn't depend on number of books sold or number of podcast downloads or anything. I just want to need to feel faithful to my calling, which in your words, faithful to my purpose. That's freeing because then mm-hmm. I'm focused on the being rather than milestones. Not that I don't have them. Anyway, long-winded discussion, but does that make sense? I mean, is that kind of what you're talking yes. about in terms of purpose versus dream? Is that different language, but similar concept from your perspective? You said that so well. So I could say, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. It, uh, and it sounds like you're, when you're describing with your coaching recertification, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of sounds like a mini crucible moment, exactly. maybe not a more yeah. of a traumatic experience, but, right. you know, just being able to see that as a mini crucible moment. Um, but I love the, the words you said, freedom. There's a freedom coming from knowing your purpose at a deep-seated level. And there can be dreams that manifest from that, like your book coming Mm -hmm. out in October. I'm sure that's been a dream of yours and started as a vision. You've got a great group of people. But there is a freedom in saying, I I hold that loosely. That's an extension of my purpose, you know, manifesting in a book. But whether I sell one or, you know, become a New York Times bestseller, it, you know, it's not going to shake who you are as a person. And again, there's normal feelings that go with that, but it's not going to break you essentially if it doesn't look the way you hope it to look. Right. You know, it's funny, just briefly, when, when I got the first copy of the book, it's, I don't know if this is not meant to sound boastful, but I wasn't like all on the floor with tears of joy. I was happy. I was grateful. But it's like my self-worth is not dependent on this book, my self-esteem. I've put 12 years of my life into this thing. It started at a talk in my church in 2008 when I felt like, when it seemed like my story could help people. That's when I was like, okay, you know, I'll go through the pain of writing this book. And if you've written some of the dumbest, stupidest things you've ever done in a book, I could only do about two hours a day and then I had to recover from the experience and reach out to my batteries <laughs> before the next day. It's not fun. It gets easier, yes. but it wasn't yes. fun. But all that's to say is, if it's arrogant to say, I'm almost proud of myself that I wasn't on the floor with tears of joy, because this is my pain, my hopes, my, it's got 12 years of my life. But, you know, it's like, you're, I'm sure you say your self-worth doesn't depend on how well you speak or how many copies of your book or how many people's lives are turned around in your counseling, right? You don't tie your self-esteem to that. It's your purpose, but it's not the wellspring of your self-esteem. Does that make sense? Yes, it's something that brings me joy. It's something I feel like I'm partnering with something bigger than myself. So it, it, it brings me a sense of joy. So rather than putting the focus on the session or the client or Uh, an upcoming book or a blog or a speaking engagement it's you know this is something that brings me joy it gives me energy absolutely uh, reminds me there's something bigger than me 
um, you know, I'm not alone in this. So it's, it's a joyful experience rather than this performance anxiety that you know, it can cop up because of my relationship with my dad. I just don't let it dictate to me what that experience is. It's will like be. being enjoying the moment, enjoying how you can help others without getting so focused on milestones. Gee, I only helped yes. five people this week. I helped 10 people last week. Gosh, gee, what am I doing wrong? Right? You yes. know, I had five good sessions and the other two hit a wall. What am I doing wrong? You know, you could get into that mindset. But I'm sure you refuse to do that. So hopefully listeners will understand what we're talking about here is, you know, using your pain for a purpose, the power of vulnerability, not tying your self-esteem. Be grateful for your calling. Be grateful when you can help people, but just decouple your self-esteem. And, and it's that's really freeing. And in some ways, you'll actually, in my experience, be able to help people even more because you're free to be more who you are rather than be so worried about hitting some milestone. You know, if anything, paradoxically, I think you can you can do more good if you decouple your self-esteem from your mission. Yeah, and my self-esteem is not tied to my role in the as the co-host of the show, <laughs> but uh, my my purpose as the co-host of the show is to let the audience and the guest and the host know when uh, I believe the captain, I heard it, the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign and it is getting to that point where it's going to be time to land the plane. Before we get there though, I would be remiss and I would not be fulfilling my purpose as the co-host of the show if I did not give you, Andrea, the opportunity to, to, to tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and your services and uh, what you do online. How can they find out more? Thank you, Gary. You served your purpose. We all need order and structure, you know, like us artists. We could just like, Absolutely. you know, go off and um, so we all, we need structure. Uh, my website's, it's andreaandersonlpc.com. You know, pretty self-explanatory. You can contact me through my website, um, subscribe to blogs, newsletter, I'm in the purpose of publishing my first book, um, which is exciting. So I'll be posting updates on there. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for being here. I love what you do. And, um, you know, when you think about what you do, what, what gives you the greatest joy about everything you do? What kind of makes your heart sing, if you will? It's connecting with people and, you know, connecting with you, Warwick, today. And, um, you know, the moment where you got a bit emotional and um, sharing more vulnerable experiences. That's that's what I'll take away from today. I might not remember exactly what I said or what was said, but I'll remember that experience and that connection point with you. So that will that will carry me through um, all weekend. So that's what I live for. That's what makes my heart sing. That's what makes everything purposeful to me is being able to connect hearts. I have been in the communications business long enough to know when the last word on a subject, on a conversation has been spoken and Andrea just spoke it. 
So listeners, Warwick and I have a favor to ask you. Uh, We would love it if you would, on the podcast app on which you're listening to this show right now, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, click subscribe so that we can share the show with more people. More people will know about the show. Share this podcast with your friends and your family and let them know about the kinds of conversations that we have here. Warwick has said it many, many, many times. We are at Beyond the Crucible. Warwick is, is the founder of Crucible Leadership a dealer in hope. And we hope, interestingly enough, we hope that hope is what has come through in this conversation that we've had with Andrea Anderson-Polk today. So until the next time we are together, listener, please remember, we understand, you heard it here, crucible experiences are real and they are painful and they are difficult, but they are not the end of your story. They were not the end of Andrea's story as she has spoken about her story. They're certainly not the end of Warwick's story either. They can be in fact, and more than 50 guests on this podcast have proved that every week. Those crucible experiences can be the start of a new chapter in your story that can be the most rewarding chapter in your story. Because what that chapter leads to the end at the end of the book of your life as you follow how you move beyond your crucible where you're headed to is a life of significance